Well, holy shit, I actually managed to do it. After procrastinating for ages, I finally managed to produce an audiobook version of the Lunatic Fringe book. It's currently available on all Amazon sites, audible.com, and shortly on iTunes. And if you're the page-turning type, it's also, of course, still available in Kindle form, paperback, and uh, hardback on Amazon. Ten hours and ten years worth of Blue Skies Magazine's articles, all available to you right fucking now, including a few author's notes and even an apology or two. Enjoy. In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who's it? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. Yeah. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously, you moron. We both do. Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker, and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports fuck yeah. And Zero Sports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it, swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, They'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia, as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast. Or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy, specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So the equipment is top of the line kick-ass stuff as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. 
The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. Hell, they've even got a special offer for all you Lunatic listeners out there. Just head to pages.nzaerosports.com forward slash into the void. That's pages.nzaerosports.com forward slash into the void and follow the instructions to register a website account with them. You'll score a discount voucher with 20 bucks towards any purchase over $200. I mean, come on. You know you're going to shop with NZ Aerosports, so grab a little extra cash towards that buy and enjoy. The offer is good until the 31st of December, and the voucher is good for three months, so go register now. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back, definitely not in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void. And we're going to get straight into this so I don't run out of air because it's a little thin up here. <laughs> Please tell me, who the fuck are you guys and what do you do? Yeah, I'm Matt Park. Uh, I'm working a remote tech job and trying to scout out all over the world. Nice. Hi, I'm Paul Henry DeBar, also known as PH. I'm a professional skydiver and I jump all around the world. Hi, my name is Omar El Hajlan. I'm the president of the Saudi Arabian Extreme Sports Federation. And like all these boys, I love to skydive. All right, now the important question is, where the fuck are we? This is, this is cool because this is the first ever completely remote podcast. And we're in a pretty epic spot. We're, yeah, we're sitting at 13,000 feet in the Panorama Hotel, right above Siamboche in Nepal in the Himalayas. How fucking cool is that? Right? How or what? All right. First, first, before we get into how we're sitting at the normal altitude of a jump run to have a podcast, which just in <laughs> itself is fucking cool. Let's talk about how we all got here in how we all got started in skydiving. So let's stick with uh, clockwise. How did you get started in skydiving and, and uh, what brought you to Nepal? Yeah, uh, so I got started back in 2008, 2009. Uh, I'd signed up for a tandem. I was working, teaching you know, ropes courses, outdoor education, and I kept pushing it back. You know, scheduling gets in the way, life gets in the way. And I overheard somebody say behind my back, Oh, he's never going to do that. He's too scared. So I called and I canceled my tandem and I signed up for an AFF course. So spite is how I got into skydiving. Really? Yeah, for sure. That's um, pretty fucking cool. So I, I went and did an AFF, <laughs> uh, you know, skipped the tandem and uh, and just went balls to the wall. That's that. a pretty impressive fuck you, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, I'm never going to do a tandem. Fuck you. I'm, yeah. I'm going to become a skydiver. So yeah. you did when you did your first AFF jump, was it overloading? Was it too much or was it? Uh... So it was my first AFF jump on my first, uh, it was on my own pack job because the weather was so bad <laughs> for like three, four weeks. I hung out of the drop zone waiting to do my first jump. And the guys looked at me and they're like, you want to learn to pack? I was like, yeah, I'm into this. I, I haven't jumped, but I'm into it. So I was learning to pack. So my first AFF jump was on my own pack job. Not to add any extra stress yeah. to it. Well, I felt good about it because other people had jumped my pack jumps. I was becoming a packer before I was uh, able to do my first AFF jump. So wow, that was kind of cool. that's amazing. Yeah. That's a pretty that's a pretty yeah. cool uh, entrance story. But the first AFF, 
I had the same feeling I still have, even here. <laughs> I have that feeling of, why am I doing what, what, <laughs> Like, where's my life? Where have I made these decisions? Why am I here? Why am I outside this helicopter over the Himalayas? Like, right. What is going on? Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny because I think most people that don't jump or most of the students coming up in skydiving assume that when you get to a certain level, that goes away. And I've always tried to reassure them that, no, I always question what the fuck is going on, which is, I think, what keeps us safe. Because you're wondering, all right, if I'm going to climb out of this helicopter, I better know what the fuck I'm doing. And <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So, PH, how about you? How did you get started um, in sport? In this well, I've always been in love with the skies, and I tried a lot of stuff when I was a teenager, such as paragliding. I, I started piloting. When I was 16, back in 1994, I saw this advertisement in a drop zone in the south of France on the Atlantic coast, and I decided I want to do this. Mm. Um, so I was 16 years old, 1994. Didn't have much money. Signed up for what we call the Trapac, which was a, a mix of uh, static line and AFF because it was kind of the beginning of AFF in France. Mm. So basically, I did a couple of static lines, actually two. The second one was good. My instructor said, okay, let's go free fall. I did category A and B. C, my uh, instructor kicked me out of the plane, literally, because that thought he was going to hang on to me. And I was about to say, aren't you like holding me? He said, no, kick me out of the plane, recovered. <laughs> Everything was fine. Signed me off. My fourth free, uh, full attitude was my first solo. Holy shit. <laughs> wow. Um, I did the uh, jump for a couple of years as a student. I didn't have much money. I put like 30, 40 jumps in two years, 94, 95. Then stopped for eight years. Uh, my daughter was born. That was like a life changer for me. Sure. And I decided, okay, what I'm going to do with my life. I was working in the fashion industry. I was making really good money at 22 years old, mm. but I didn't like it. The fashion industry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <coughs> and, uh, I decided I want to log. I want to work with my passion. So mm. I started working in the season in the winter as I'm also a skier. Started to pay for my jump in the summer, <laughs> and uh, from there I started growing. From 2003, first season in the US, then 2004 went to Russia. 2005, 2006 went to Russia. Uh, get some training over there with some really cool people, and uh, then I started also. I met Tom Noonan back in 2010 in Cross Key. And uh, we became really good friends. He invited me to Everest Skydive in 2013. And uh, that's why I started working for Everest Skydive. Holy shit. And from there, I just started building <coughs> up. We did some more expeditions, few records, and it's been very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you kind of went from uh, a relatively normal path in skydiving to Everest. Yeah. Pretty fucking fast. Yeah. That's so. It happened that when we were working together, um, you know, sometimes you jump with this TI and you get this really cool feeling. Everything is smooth and easy. And that was the way with Tom. Uh, he asked me to jump on some demo jump with, with him. And, and we just had a really cool IO relationship. It was super easy to jump with him. He was super happy with the footage I was providing. So back in 2013, he said, would you like to come to Everest? I mean, you pay for your logistic and stuff. You might not jump, but I'd like you to make some footage like on the ground and everything. So I came over, I did some photos, some videos, made a, a cool edit, really liked it. And then in 2014, he said, um, I'd like you to oversee like all the wow. communication and media for every skydive. And uh, that's where we started. That's <laughs> fantastic. I mean, and what an opportunity. Uh, yes, it was great. I mean, jumping in the mountain is amazing. Uh, my home drop zone, my drop zone is in Korshavet in the three valleys over the Alps. And I've done a lot of jumps in uh, all kinds of different mountains. 
I think that's where you really see the link between the earth and the sky. Mm. That's really the, uh, I just love it. Yeah. Uh, especially when you go below the mountains and all this, you start from above and they're below you and then you get into the valley and these huge mountains get on the side of you. That's an awesome feeling. Puts it in perspective, right? Totally. Hi. <laughs> Mr. Aijuan. Yes, these, sir. These guys know you for sure. Yeah, they do. But I, I want think. you to reintroduce yourself, please. Yeah, well, uh, I started jumping back in October 93 in St. Mary County, Maryland. Mm. I did my AFF over there, kind of uh, like Piash. I, I did it in five jumps instead of eight. Um, and uh, But not as drastic as yours. <laughs> I, I, I was not kicked out of the plane by Kevin Gibson by any means. And uh, after that, basically, by uh, 1996, I had become world champion in free flying and, yes, you had. and in freestyle at the first FAI uh, sanctioned freestyle world meet. Well, World Cup first and then 97, the world meet, then the world games, the world air games, so on and so forth. I uh, got a few necklaces, a few accolades. <laughs> and uh, from there, I decided to do some stunt work mm. and work with Joe Jennings and a lot of cool guys, Greg Gasson. Uh, then BC, uh, Troy Hartman, and mm. so on and so forth. Um, from there, we took it to, uh, well, I had spent already about almost 20 years in Eloy skydiving. And between uh, running a school over there, uh, skydiving to do stunts, and just fun jumping with people. Sure. Then I got uh, called to go to Dubai, and uh, I trained uh, His Highness Sheikh Hamdan Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, uh, how to, um, did his AFF basically, and then jumped with him and helped him create Skydive Dubai. Mm. And that was really awesome. Thank you, by the way. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> it, it, it was a very cool project and it was indeed a lot of fun. And I love that place mm. to, still till today. I still live in Dubai. Yeah. I've been there now for 13 years. And uh, my daughter was born and raised there. Mm. And, wait, wait, uh, your daughter, Yeah. I, I want to sideline you for just a second. What did your daughter just do? Yeah, she just won. She she just became a world champion jujitsu at the World Pro Tournament in Abu Dhabi for the under eleven, under thirty six kg uh, gray belt. How fucking cool is that? It was amazing. I'm so come proud. on. Now that does say a little bit about our age group is that we're all old enough to brag about our kids while we talk about all the extreme shit we do. Absolutely. But that's amazing, dude. It, it really is. But well, here's the thing. I, I'm passion driven. I talk to people. I say, you know, some people are money driven. Some people are. I am passion driven. Yeah. So I've always followed my passion. This this is what makes me wake up in the morning. This is what gets me up and lets me go to the next step. But as soon as my daughter was born, that took second fiddle. Now my passion was my daughter. All my focus was towards her mm. and skydiving. Yes, it's great. I love it. I still want to do it. Sure. But second fiddle. Yeah. And. Well, I think you remember, it would have been your birthday maybe three years ago, two or three years ago. Yep. I asked you, how the fuck are you such a nice guy? Because No, no, <laughs> you gave the best answer. You just said, Dunya. And I'm like, all right, I get it, because I've been a long-distance dad, so I still got to be an asshole and be a really fun dad at the right. same time. But you're just a nice guy, and I, 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 I'm just looking at him going nobody's this nice there's something's going on here so i finally had to ask him while we were toasting him at his birthday i'm like dude how how are you doing this this is i i'm not sure i'm buying it and he's doing it and I, 
Okay, I get that. I get, and, and it's true, <laughs> and it's true. I learned so much from her. Yeah, it's incredible. You think how can anyone learn from an eleven-year-old? You do. She's a little badass. You do. <laughs> she sure is. So now, all you guys know um, uh, dramatically more than I do, and, and what I really want to get is the history uh, behind how Everest Skydive started. Uh, I know you guys know all about the uh, original ideas and the logistics, especially now the logistics. I would love for people to know exactly what goes into pulling this shit off because a lot of people think you can just bring a helicopter up here and, and <laughs> toss a couple of people in and make a jump, but that's just a great recipe to fuck things up. Absolutely. You guys do it the right way, and I want to know how it started and how you guys make that happen. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll start with uh, a little bit of the history, and then I'll... Please, I'll pass please, it to Pierre, who can tell you more about the logistics, since he is right now the number one. He's our leader, and uh, he can tell us all the headaches that he has to go through <laughs> and all the hoops that he has to jump through. Yeah. So, in 2008, a gentleman by the name of Nigel Gifford, uh, along with Suman Pandey, decided to do every skydive. Mm. So, they brought in uh, Pilatus Porter from Switzerland, ferreted to uh, here, to the Siamboche Airport, which mm. is at 13,000 feet, the highest airport, the, the highest civilian airport in the world. Mm. And uh, he set up this boogie that was uh, really incredible. So at the time, because of the Pilatus Porter, we were jumping at 29,500 feet, which was higher Fire. than yeah. the peak of Everest. Yeah. And so that's why we're calling it Everest. And of course, we've got the view of Everest in the background yeah. and all these beautiful mountains, all these... I mean, how many peaks did you say you, you could see? Well, you can see <clears throat> at least five of the eight southern Perth peak. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, how blessed, how yeah. incredible. So uh, after that, I, I was involved in that first event. After that, they asked me to come back, but I was too busy setting up and doing the whole skydive Dubai mm. and coaching. Shake Again, thank so, you. <laughs> Again, you're welcome. And so I had to pull out of that, and uh, I did not come back till 2013, and then started coming back on a regular basis. But now to give you a better idea of the logistics and the <clears> nightmares <throat> and the headaches and the, the, the heartaches and sometimes <laughs> the, the passion that goes yeah. in, I'll let Piash uh, take over. So I joined the Everest Skydive team back in 2013. I didn't make a jump this year because uh, we got stuck in Nukla because of the weather. I arrived the last day of jumping and it was pretty bad weather also. The guys were going to jump to Ametablam. And I was uh, pretty sad because to come all the way sure. to see this mountain, I was ready to jump. But um, then we went to Pokhara. We did some jumps in Pokhara Skydive and everything went fine. So like I said before, the following year, uh, Tom Noonan asked me if I could, if I could come over and uh, oversee all the, the, the media department. Um, so I started working with Tom back in 2014. Um, for the first couple of years, I was just really working on all the footage, the photos and the videos, making uh, edits and I work. It was very interesting, uh, very challenging. Um, and then I started to work with Tom because he was having all these headaches. I could see, see it in his <laughs> eyes and sometimes he was like, sharing some of this with me and you know i was putting some input then we started to work more like partners from 2016 nice and uh i was really helping him in any way i could to uh, smoothen uh, the, the operation and uh i became a uh, team leader uh in 2019 tom couldn't come and asked asked me to you know oversee the whole expedition sure. because i had the experience sure. and he had shared with me 
all these troubles. So we've got a lot of different technical aspects uh, jumping here. Um, first thing is oxygen. Um, <clears throat> the oxygen, basically, we didn't have any uh, sport system or civilian system. The only system you could get at the time were military systems right. or alpine system for summiters. Um, on the first ever skydive, they used the summit system. Um, but the um, engineer who created the system wasn't so keen on, on developing and optimizing the system for skydiving. Then we met Ted Atkins, uh, with very well-known alpinist who created the top out system. Mm. Um, he changed the game totally for the alpinist before he created the top out system. The um, death rate was about one out of three, one out of three for people who were submitting without oxygen and what one out of 10 for people who were submitting with oxygen. Right. After creating the system, this rate stayed one out of three without oxygen, but it went from one out of 10 to one out of 800. Wow. For the people who submitted wow. Everest. That's so a huge job. That was a huge game changer. He literally democratized the summit of Everest. Yeah. And so we approached him and say, okay, Ted, would you like to work with us? And Ted at first said, well, I'm an alpinist. I don't know anything about skydiving. So no guys, I'm not going to jump out of airplanes and stuff. So Tom, very smart, said, okay, just come for a tandem with me and we'll talk. <laughs> they set the world record of the highest tandem landing in Gorakshep yep. at 5,300 meters. It was just crazy. Ted just fell in love with skydiving. Of course he did. Said, mm -hmm. I'll work with you guys, no problem. Then did his AFF after 50 years, I think he was 54 years old when he wow. did his AFF. Fell in love with the sport. We went jumping in, in uh, Russia in different places. And we started working on the top out aero system, which mm. was a different version of the top out system. So that was the first real civilian uh, sport system for skydiving. Mm. We worked on that for quite a few years, got it almost finished, and unfortunately, Ted passed away. Um, so then we created a new system, the Summit, uh, the Summit Halo 2 with Neil, the, who was the guy who used the first system back in, uh, with 2008. in 2008. Mm. And he saw that actually Everest Skydive was getting bigger and there was actually a market for that. Oh, yeah. Not a big market, but good visibility. And uh, we've been uh, working on the new system for quite a few years and it's been ready last year. So the oxygen was really challenging because uh, we needed a system that was light, easy to use, reliable and uh, to fight hypoxia. Mm. Because basically we start an attitude where we are already hypoxic yeah. due to that. Um, attitude sickness. So it was very interesting to work on the system. It was a lot of work, a lot of test jump. We did some really cool project, uh, like the Red Bull Skydive combo with, mm. uh, with Fred and Beans. We set a lot of records. It was super interesting to, to work on this aspect. Um, now we've got the first official cellular production civilian sports system, which is the Halo 2 Summit, mm. and it's working until uh, 25,000 feet. Wow. Perfect. And that's what we're using for a red skydive. So that was the first thing we really had to sort out, and that took quite some time sure. because it's almost 15 years now since the first air skydive, sure. and the final product came last year. So, and it is the first serial production, so it's really cool. Sure. Uh, then there's the environment. So we are jumping in a very hostile environment. Um, there's not many flat paths around. Um, it's not easy to land, and the the <clears throat> the weather up here is. <laughs> unpredictable totally it can change in a couple of minutes temperamental it's crazy Very. so 
it only comes with experience. Experience in the mountain, experience in the Himalaya, sure. understand how it works in the morning, midday, in the end of the day. You basically get all four seasons in one day here. <laughs> Every single forecast is it's going to be sunny with some chances of clouds, possible rain, <laughs> eventually snow. <laughs> so that's the, the forecast we get every day. Um, we get some jet streams here, which are like really crazy, 50, 70, up to 120 knots. Mm. It's insane. So the environment, you have to be very humble. Um, there's no much landing out, absolutely almost nothing. And that's pretty tough. <laughs> yeah. Then... The team part of it is very important, and that's what Tom was the best at, to uh, gather the best people that could work together. Because when you work at 12,000 feet or 13,000 feet, well, you cannot hide. You're the true yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the true self does come out. Yes, it does. You get hypoxic at 13,000. Yes. Yep. And Tom was incredible at gathering all these fantastic skydivers that had their... Uh, experience and uh, and expertise in each field and every time we were making like a dream team right and that's why the operations were like so smooth every time thanks to the team sure everybody was working together great everybody has his own id and could put you know good ideas good input into the, the station and that was great sure and then there's the nepalese aspect it's <laughs> a very very tough aspect um yeah we just don't work the same way as the western you know, sure. so everything comes late, everything comes last minute. Yeah. We have contingency for everything. You have to plan everything in advance because everything's going to change. Sure. You don't know when you're going to get your gear. You don't know what kind of gear you're going to get. You don't know what kind of oxygen you're going to get. You have to run around all, all over the place all the time, make last moments change, always adjust, always adjust. Sure. Well, always I mean, that's adjust. the thing, right? So, so skydivers are used to the weather's out of our control. But not my rig. I'm, my rig is with me. I know where my rig is. I know where my equipment is. I know that there's no customs when I have to go to the drop zone. And I don't have to deal with a different culture. Or if I am dealing with a different culture, it's a culture that works at the drop zone that I jump at. So I understand. But here, all bets are off. Yes. I mean, holy shit. The stress that you have to go through logistically knowing that you've got to get all, not just the jumpers here. And then up the hill all the way to 13,000 feet, which is where it all starts. Mm -hmm. But you got to get all the gear here as well, all the camera equipment, all the computer equipment to give these people the product that they've come for. Holy shit. Imagine all the oxygen. Yes, yeah. all of that. I mean, I basically have to reassess about a dozen times <laughs> depending on is the gear available, is the gear here, where, is gonna, where the gear is going to be, or uh, the jumper. Uh, at the jumpers' feet, at the mountain seek. Um, what's the weather? The weather is good now. It's not going to be good in five minutes. It might be good again in one hour. Sure. We have a window. Should we take it? Should we not take it? Are we going to push it? Are we going to hold it? Because you don't know what tomorrow's going to be off. Oh, yeah. You know? So it's, it's, it's constant reassessing, constant making decision, um, and sometimes tough decision. Oh, yeah. Well, hell, I've just <laughs> been here today watching and observing everything and I've watched the plan change like eight times from eight o'clock in the morning until noon and you still manage how many loads did you guys get in today four four I mean come on that's Ten amazing today F four <laughs> loads um, all the jumpers two tandems I mean that had absolutely incredible times and this is always shit coming at you from every direction and this is where someone like Piash is really good because <laughs> you got to know how to roll with, with the punches mm. 
and it's not easy. And if you're not flexible, if you're if you're a thick chunk and you're not a palm tree, you're just gonna snap sure. and you're not gonna make it in these conditions. Whereas Piach is very good at that. He's very good at analyzing the situation, dealing with it in a very calm and logical way, sure. and do, making the best. Like you saw, eight changes today. Oh yeah, we're gonna do this. Nope, no, we're not. Now we're gonna do this. Yeah. Okay. Now we're gonna do that. Well, sure. Too, no. many, too many variables. You just made your first jump here. I did, yeah. Um, and you got to see a, a bit behind the scenes, but as a client and a skydiver and seeing a bit behind the scenes, it's got to be pretty cool from your perspective. But what made you decide, I want to go jump over Everest? Yeah, so over the last six, seven years, uh, I've had the opportunity to jump amazing places, the Maldives, the Pyramids of Egypt, in Giza, you know, a bunch of other amazing places where I've met these guys outside of Everest. That was, it, it's always been one of my, one day I'll go do Everest. That'd be, that'd be great. Mm. And then as these things typically happen, Omar texted me in March and was like, <laughs> do you want to go do Everest this year? And I was like, well, that that's really pulling forward a plan that was in my head for many years down the road. Right. right? And uh, before I considered anything, I just texted back, of course, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> So, of course. Yeah, yes. of course. Uh, of course we're going to Everest. <laughs> the, uh, but seeing all these things, and, and what I tell people when they say, oh, the Maldives looked amazing in the pictures on social media, the Everest looks amazing, how do, you know, how do I make this happen? One of the things I warn people is when you're leaving the drop zone and you're going to an event in Costa Rica, in the Maldives, in Egypt, at Everest, you have to give up on skydiving before you leave your house. It, <laughs> the purpose of your trip cannot be the skydive right. because there have been many times we've all gone to places, <clears throat> destination skydives, that you don't get to jump. Hmm. You, PH, you said you didn't get to jump in 2013, right? Yeah, um, I didn't get to jump. The first year here. It, it's, you, have to, you have to let that go sure. because when you show up, anywhere that there's, you know, you're outside of a semi-controlled environment of a drop zone and, a, and an airport, you're you're kind of at the mercy of all these factors we've been talking about, oh, yeah. right? So I've actually been really impressed uh, being here at Everest for the first time. This is this is one of the most you know technically challenging places to come jump, sure, uh, because there's so much you know. PSU described everything. Um, the uh, there's so much that has to go into this, sure, and the whole thing at any moment can just come apart, <laughs> and you don't get to jump, and. Uh, you know, but the whole time, the whole trip's been beautiful, and every step we've taken, I've said, "Well, this is far enough for me." Like, you know, the skydive, skydive would be really cool if we ever get there. But we're we're hiking through the Himalayas, right? right? I got my first view ever at Everest and at Alma de Blom, and it's it's beautiful for so sure. That's the mentality you have to take when you when you go it's outside a damn the good mentality. Yeah. Well, PH, let me ask though: you're also dealing with tandems who are notoriously ignorant in the ways of skydiving mm -hmm. and don't understand that for whatever reason, skydivers can't control the weather. Yeah. Um, and we can't control things like customs and all the other shit that you have to deal with. So how do you brace your uh, um, tandem students for the possibility that they may be coming a long way for a long wait? So when we're going on an expedition, the first thing I tell them is we are going on an expedition. Not an expedition. Expedition. You never know what's going to happen. That's mm. why it's called an expedition. Mm. Uh, you can go to Antarctica. You can go to Everest. There's a lot of places which are like with very different kind of weather, very very different kind of environment, and you really don't know. You hope for the best. You choose the best weather window. You choose the best time of the year. You choose the best team. 
and you're going. You know you're going. You never know when you're coming back. <laughs> you can go for three days. You can go for 10 days. You can go for a month. Mm. The goal is to skydive, of course. So we go on this expedition with a, with, a, with a tandem. And the way I do it is I, I just explain them all. I'll explain them what is the weather, how it works. Mm. You know, they're smart people. They understand. Yesterday, we had a beautiful blue sky, but we had about 55, 60 knots above 27. It was no good for us. We cannot yeah. be dropped so far away from the drop zone in case of a malfunction or anything. Mm. We want some limitation of the wind. And I just explained them and I showed them and I tell them on every single expedition I've done so far, people have jumped. Mm. There has been some time they did what, two jumps instead of three or one jump instead of two, but I never came back from an expedition with no jumps. It's a hell of a track record for 15 years. Well, I've been, that's nine years now for, for Everest. That's my 10th expedition. Uh, I've done a couple of expeditions in, in Antarctica. We've done some expedition in some other remote places, mm. very remote places, in the jungle, in the Amazonian forest, <laughs> in the desert. I mean, every time we made it happen. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Super cool. A couple of events got canceled because we knew it wasn't going to be sure good for us. The weather was forecasted terrible. Sure. Um, but when we go on an expedition, well, we're there for the skydive and we wait. We'll wait one week, one month. I was there two months in Poland to do a high altitude record to get the perfect weather window to do that 37,000 wow. feet jump. And that took us two months to wait Holy in shit. a hotel. But I mean, the destination <laughs> stuff is it's worth it, though. It's super yeah. impressive. Yeah. Well, and you just came from Egypt. I mean, was it was what kind of life are we living? How cool is oh. it that you literally just went from jumping over the pyramids to jumping in the Himalaya? And going straight from here to Saudi Arabia to do a boogie over there for See, the local people, for the local community, because we don't we don't have a drop zone yet. So we do these pop-ups every like three, four, like one a quarter. This is much. why people that don't skydive don't believe our stories. Because they sound so ridiculous when you, how many of you have been in the middle of telling a non-jumper an almost average story and as you're saying it, you're like, I don't even believe this. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, how do you explain what we do? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, which is fantastic. Now, you don't work in skydiving. Uh, I teach AFF on the weekend okay. when I'm, when I'm at my home drop zone. So, uh, I, I uh, shoot some video sometimes, you know. But I, other words, I, uh, I, I uh, you know, forced my SNTA not to sign off my tandem rating renewal in 2015. Good man. Uh, that was that was the departure from full time, you know, working in skydiving for sure. Me. Uh, but but yeah, I, I work on the weekends when I'm home. I still love teaching AFF. Nice. I, I love coaching. Now, what do you do in the real world? Uh, in the real world, I work at a tech company. We do cloud consulting. So my head's in the clouds, even when it's not in the clouds. All right. Uh, but, and, so, but I'm sorry to interrupt, but right now we're literally in, in the, the clouds. clouds. We, we are. Today, this morning was beautiful, sunny, blue skies. And right now we had to walk through the clouds to get to our, our, uh, the tea house. our, our tea house that we're staying at. <laughs> and it's incredible. We're in the clouds. Yeah. 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 We did our last jump, landed literally what? Six so, minutes later. If that. We if that totally it was perfect yeah. so you work in the real world so you know how weird it is to try and connect the dots like when you tell people that you work with in that world the stuff that you do for fun are they looking at you like how full of shit is this guy oh i, I love it i i love uh, i i love one day i was i was on a work call i was on a zoom call and my doorbell rings 
and there's a, I opened the door and I, it was an internal call. So I said, Oh, I just muted my thing real quick and they could see what was happening. And I walked back and I opened the door and there's a FedEx lady with her arms fully extended, holding the package away from her with a little bit of fear in her eyes because the package is covered with stickers that say explosives. <laughs> and, and she's holding it far away and she goes, thank God you're here. I didn't want to take this back on the truck and it requires a signature. So I signed for it and I walked over and I sat down and, and uh, you know, some of the people I started to at work are like, Oh, you just get a package. I was like, yeah, and I held it up. And, you know, it says explosives all over it. And I said, I said, Oh, but it's just some things to spice up my skydiving. You know, it's some smoke for demos and different things like that. And, and uh, one of the executives at my company is like, excuse me, what, why would you need to spice up your skydiving? <laughs> you know, what, like it's, it's so outside the realm. And when I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a few weeks off. I'm going to the Himalaya. I'm going to skydive next to Everest and Alma de Blanc. The, it, it's almost like a numb feeling, I think, for them now. Yeah. That, is that really what is going on? Like, are you really doing that? Yeah. You know, and I think there's some disconnection in people's brains that, People are actually going out and doing this. They're actually going and seeing Everest. They're actually going and seeing all these places. And I think it's um, less with the people I work with. I'm in a really good company. But I think for a lot of people, the things that we do are just so outside of the normal yeah. day, right? They're they're so outside of the the small sphere that I live in. Um, you know, we, we live in an open world. I mean, everybody's sitting in this room has the widest worldview, right? Yeah. We've, we've all every day interact with people from all different cultures. We've seen a lot of the world that a lot of people will never see. And, yeah. and I think that's, that's an interesting group of people to get together. Sure. No matter what you're doing. Well, the cool thing about the sport is even if you don't travel too far and you don't do destination skydives, the world comes to you mm -hmm. as an, as an American living in America, jumping in Nevada and New Jersey of all places. I think I worked with less Americans than anybody else, yeah. which is incredible. Because the whole world comes to you and you get to live all these other cultures in so many different ways. I mean, hell, I ended up working in Dubai for a decade just because I decided one day to go jump out of an airplane, which how ridiculously amazing is that? It's, it's awesome. And one of my favorite things to see is a, you know, doctor, lawyer, someone in a higher level of society, you know, perceived. Uh, getting advice from someone who's living in a tent back behind the manifest <laughs> building, right? That's, it's bringing so exactly, many different, right? yeah, it's, it's breaking down so many <laughs> barriers that, that are built up in society. And, and it's like, where else can you see that? Right? You can't, you yeah. can't. Yeah, no, that the, there is something very unique about watching the, the stereotypical dirtbag skydiver yeah. sitting and having a conversation with the businessman or woman or uh, we've all worked in, in uh, regular tandem operations where the kid that's shooting the video or the guy that's doing the tandem is just absolutely the most outrageous party animal on the weekends. But here he's taking somebody's grandma on a skydive and you just, you, you can't not love the, the clash. It's so much fun. It yeah. really is. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So with the destination stuff, you've been, I mean, all over the world. It, the jungle one really kind of intrigues me. What the <laughs> fuck did you jump into a jungle um, so, for? Uh, I've jumped on the, had the chance to jump on the seven continents. Um, we set the first record of the fastest seven continent jumps. <laughs> so with Tom and Jim, so as a tandem, um, we did it in seven months. I actually did it in five months and two weeks because I did some all the jump. Uh, between the, the first and the last jumps we did. Right. 
So yeah, I've been jumping all over the place. I just love it. I think when you're on the ground and you go to these beautiful scenery places, it's, it's beautiful. But when you get a bit of elevation and come into these places from the skies, like the pyramid, like the blue hole, like the Everest, like so many places, you have such a different perspective. It's so beautiful to mm. come from the sky, see this old environment, this beautiful scenery and just land in the middle of it. It's incredible. Um, in the uh, Amazonian forest, I was actually working with the French army. Mm. Um, we did uh, several jumps. I did three expeditions in French Guiana. Um, so some of them were for um, Reiki, Reiki some places that were like very hard access. So mm. we needed to jump and land there <laughs> uh, in like in, literally in the middle of the Amazonia with like half a football field to land and everywhere else is just jungle. Mm. Uh, in French, we call it impenetrable. I don't know how you can translate that. Impenetrable. Yes. It's like... You can't get in, you can't get out. <laughs> if you land in that, you're pretty well, let's much go lost. jump a parachute over yeah. there. <laughs> so we did some Reiki jump, I did a little bit of training, and uh, we also did some tandem skydive uh, for wounded veterans mm. uh, that were working there, and uh, we wanted to give them a special gift. So we did some, we opened some very special location, like Saül in the middle of French Guiana, you can only access by plane, mm. in uh, Antecumpata, which is... Uh, uh, native Indian village, American Indian village of the Maroni, of the uh, oh, River wow. Maroni. So we landed an oldies kid, uh, in their like, um, native, uh, costumes came and greeted us. And all these kids were so happy to see us. And that's it was amazing. just magical. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's one of the really cool things about the destination stuff. I would imagine is the reactions you get from people that would have yeah. never even imagined what a skydive is, they let alone seen it. it. Yeah. We jumped also in Balewa once with Omar. Um, we were like far, far, uh, in Nepal near to the Dolagiri and, uh, People didn't know we were coming to jump there. So we met the first road, <laughs> we landed there, and people were just shocked. And we met the second road, and by the second road, there were like dozens of kids everywhere greeting us, like, like people coming from the sky, unbelievable. That's incredible. <laughs> you also had a, a, a bit of a record yourself by having the first chop over one of the poles, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I did have a cutaway in Antarctica. It was the first one. And the big boost was very happy about it because actually Skyhook worked on the seven continents. Yeah. <laughs> was really awesome. Um, um, I also landed at the Barunsey West Coast, uh, about 27,200 feet. Wow. That was the highest landing. That was an incredible jump. Uh, we made it with Tom. It was a 27 hours, 27 hours expedition. Wow. <laughs> What's it like to land a canopy that, I mean, there's no air up there. There's no air up there. So I did a couple of test jumps with, uh, uh, was a 260 and a 230. And uh, the 260, I'm quite light. I, I, I didn't feel comfortable with the 260 because mm. I was just, it wasn't anchored. I was not heavy enough for this, sure. for this canopy. So I told Tom that I would like to get the 230. Said okay, get along. It was a super tricky jump because basically we could go to maximum twenty three thousand feet, mm. but the landing was at twenty seven two hundred. So that gave me two thousand eight hundred feet. Yeah, it it, it wouldn't work because mm. in high altitude, first of all, we're jumping from helicopter, so you need to spend quite a few time to get to terminal velocity, at least five to six seven seconds. Sure. Then you the opening takes much. I mean, you lose more altitudes because of the density of the air. 
So I was saying 2,800 feet to jump above the glacier is Oof. super sketchy. So we made a different plan. That's why we went to the, to the call. I could jump just after the call when I had an extra 1,200, 1,300 feet. Mm. So I basically jumped right after the call and I opened, I would say about, I mean, I was in the canopy 1,200 feet <sighs> above drop zone. And the only way I could properly land was to always keep in speed with my canopy. Uh, it's not easy to keep me with a 230. Right. <laughs> I was basically turning and turning and turning. So I would come with some enough speed to get a good flare. Mm. Uh, the conditions were perfect. And uh, I did beautiful stand-up landing. For this small anecdote, I went up there. I'm ready to jump. I'm alone in the helicopter because we can only be two people at this altitude. Mm. Everything is good. I check my oxygen. Everything is good. I put my feet on the skid. And I'm just about to go and I do my last check and everything and I've got no oxygen. My oxygen runs out. And I'm still pretty clear. I'm, I think, okay, I, I can make that jump, but it's not right. Right. We had a contingency plan. Tom was waiting for me at uh, Bar uh, Barose Base Camp with some spare cylinders and everything. So I said to the pilot, we've got to go down, get some more oxygen. I, I called it. So the helicopter is going down. The pilot thinks we were like, calling it out like totally right so he calls the there was a very good friend of mine Yorick a high mountain guy that probed the whole area for to make it sure for me to land he was up there with a Sherpa the Sherpa was actually getting really attitude sick <laughs> and Yorick was still like pumping he was coming back from Melrose so he was already acclimatized said okay we're calling it out you know pack everything up so the shepherd tells Yorick, okay, pack everything up. Yorick says, you don't move a finger until PH lands here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I get back to Barunse, change, uh, Tom changed my cylinder in like a couple of minutes, get back up, and did this beautiful landing. I don't think I would have landed so perfectly if I, if I was no, one of oxygen. Probably not. We packed everything, get up the mountain. I did the jump around. I landed around 7 a.m. At 11, we went to Kathmandu having beer. And asking said, what the fuck just happened? See, those are the <laughs> stories nobody would ever believe. How do you believe that story? Yeah. I did this and now I'm in Kathmandu. And the worst part, oh, one of the one of the worst parts of this whole story is that Guinness would not accept it. Why not? Even with all the information he sent oh, in, yeah. with all the paperwork, with all the proof, with all the video, Guinness would not approve it. Only because the G one of my GPS, I have several GPS and in high altitude, all our altimetry gets wrong. Mm. Um, everything, everything we works with uh, aneroid capsule, it doesn't work. GPS works very good for latitude and longitude, but for altitude also doesn't Not work much, very yeah. well. So I've got my beautiful GPS run, but I'm off by a hundred feet. I'm literally landing into the mountain. <laughs> oh no! So you can see my landing point, but it's just about yeah, about hundred meters, about three hundred feet lower than the terrain. And they have the terrain, they know the elevation of the terrain. But because the GPS showed that I landed lower than the terrain, they didn't accept it. I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> so imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it sucks, but I mean, holy shit, what a jump, huh? Yeah, the experience uh, is worth 100 Guinness, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely. <laughs> now, I, I overheard you guys talking about your, uh, your continuing plan because you're going to be doing uh, two or three jumps total um, here. But tomorrow, you're going to go scout a landing area next to Ahmedablam. Yeah, we're going to go to uh, Ahmedablam Base Camp and go check out for a nice landing area there. We're going to scout out for the perfect place so that Matt can go up 
and have a really amazing free flight jump if everything works and uh, we get all the equipment that we need yeah. and I'll be joining him and we're going to do an amazing free flight jump over Amadabong. Did you have any idea that you were going to be doing a free fly and landing in the Himalayan, uh, what do they call it, the Himalayan Matterhorn? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think the first free fly jump over Amadabong, is that right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So uh, that'll be, that'll be exciting, but that, what a wild, what a wild thing. Right. We got to, we actually, uh, flew up to Kalapatar yesterday, um, and we landed the helicopter at 18,500 feet. Um, Nadia, Omar, myself, and the pilot. Uh, we landed, we got out, we took some pictures. We could see Everest just as the clouds cleared. Oh, yeah. But we were actually overlooking Everest Base Camp, which was a wild experience. We yeah. were actually higher than Everest Base Camp. Uh, Omar tricked me into doing jumping jacks uh, when we were taking pictures. So we get, no, they were at 18,500 feet. Omar and I are jumping up and down trying to take the perfect picture right in front of Everest. And so we're, we're, we're losing, we're losing our oxygen. We're sitting here getting hypoxic. It's like, okay, it's time to go. And uh, we start heading down the mountain, but we got to overfly on the base camp. Right. And there's, there's tents set up all over the place. It looks amazing. Uh, so I'm super, I'm super hopeful we can find a good uh, path for us to come in. And you know what I love about that story is maybe two and a half weeks ago, I climbed Kalapatar. So one step after the other. And anybody that knows what Kalapatar is, it's the highest point that you can pretty much go to with it without doing alpine stuff. Right. Uh, and it's well above base camp. It's fucking up there. And you guys would have landed on the plateau below the rocks. And then there's the very... Right, very, we were pretty much, we landed in the middle. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I had climbed all the way to the top, and if at any point, and I saw a number of helicopters come and land, because that's one of the places that they go for tours. Right. If at any point I had looked down and seen people standing outside the helicopter doing <laughs> fucking jumping jacks, <laughs> I would have lost my shit, because it was literally everything I could do to put one foot in front of the other climbing up this, and I don't know if I would have pissed my pants laughing or come down and thrown rocks at you. <laughs> that had to be, I mean, come on, that's hilarious. So it was it was such a cool experience being, <laughs> being up there. Uh, it's I mean eighteen thousand feet like that's even for a skydive at a drop zone that offers 18 that eighteen five. Yeah, you're going to be you're going to be on uh, nasal cannula in the plane at the bare minimum, and that's a that's a huge that's a huge thing to go and jump from. And we just went and landed a helicopter, got out, <laughs> taking photos, we're jumping in the air, yeah, and stuff. That is absolutely hilarious. But let me tell you, by the time the three of us got back to the helicopter, <laughs> we were floored. We were all boxing. The head was starting to to pump a little. We were just starting to feel a little tingly in oh, the yeah. fingers. It was... People really underestimate hypoxia. Yeah, they yeah. really underestimate it. I mean, I... I've been lucky in that the two times that I've come up here, I've given myself a month on the trail so I can stop and stay two, three days if I want somewhere to acclimate. And no matter how much you acclimate, it is still kicking your ass. Absolutely. But to fly from like Lukla or even from here up to um, Kalapatar, holy shit, that's a big deal with no with no oxygen with no o2 yeah, yeah. that i mean anybody that's jumped and done a 15 or 16,000 foot jump and it starts getting the warm and fuzzies when they got o2 imagine going a couple thousand feet higher with no oxygen yeah i think i think as skydivers as people in general we tend to be like ah oh, it's not really not really as bad as not really as bad as people say it is not really as bad as this not really as bad as that i still hold a grudge against 
a lot of skydivers. Uh, I got uh, hurt doing non-jumping activities at the drop zone. And uh, I was in the hospital for a month. And a lot of people just didn't come see me because eh, it's probably not that bad, right? Uh, it's not it's not, <laughs> not that bad. He so wasn't jumping. How bad could he hurt? Well, do you want to tell us what happened? I don't know if I want to tell you. <laughs> okay, I'll, say, I'll tell you the abbreviated. So okay. uh, our pilot, we'll call him Wade because that's yeah. his name. Uh, we walk in one day to jump. He uh, cracks a beer. He looks at us. He goes, no, no, no flying today. Cracks a beer and chugs it. So no flying. And we're like, okay. So w we look around at each other and say, what should we do today? And we say, we, uh, we're going to build a swoop pond. That's, that's we're we're going to build a swoop pond. We're going to build a swoop pond. Okay. But to, we had some heavy equipment available. And to get water to the swoop pond, we need to cross the runway with a, with a hose underneath it. But to get water into the hose, you know, we're working backwards from the goal. Okay. Uh, good tip for life and anything you're trying to <laughs> work do. Backwards. Work backwards from the goal. Uh, we have a creek, and the creek's in, in like a 10-foot, 3-meter uh, gully. We say, well, we'll take the bobcat we have, push some big boulders in there. We'll build a dam, dam up the creek, siphon the water, cross the place to where we can fill up this swoop pond area. So we get the, we get the materials. We're, we're putting big rocks in the creek. We build the dam. Uh, there are some other skydivers behind the dam, you know, shoveling dirt onto it to make it nice and waterproof, and it's working. Uh, uh, Michael Stevens, if you guys know him, was standing waist deep in water on the other side of the dam, you know, just making sure it's good. Uh, it was suggested that this was, would be a great time because the water normally ran into a cave and there was some brush piled up. There's no water there now because it hasn't crossed over the dam. It was suggested it would be a great time to burn off the, all this brush. Oh. So I said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. So I run down to the hangar, acquire some 100-octane low lead, come oh, back. no. I sit there, five gallons or so. I douse it all over this wood. It's going down into the into the cave underneath the fumes. And remember, I'm in a 10-foot, 3-meter gully, so the fumes are building, building up. up. And oh, to give no. you the scene, I'm wearing a straw cowboy hat. Of for, course you, you are. Know, for the looks. Yeah. Uh, T-shirt shorts and, and chacos, uh, flip-flops. So... Uh, I look back and I poured a line back about 15 feet because I don't want to get burned. <laughs> and so I look back and say, you know, like this is going to be awesome. And as I bend over to light it, uh, Michael tells the story the best because he says, as he heard me say this is going to be awesome, he looks up. And as he looks up, he feels the heat on his face <laughs> as the fireball completely engulfs me. Oh, no. And so oh, I, no. Start, I start screaming. <laughs> I'm on fire. <laughs> well, that's what some people do. They're on fire. Listen, if there's any time for a grown man to scream like a five-year-old girl, is when you are in a fireball. So I jumped to where the creek was, you know, <laughs> splashing in the mud. And uh, my other friend Nick yells, you know, you're not on fire anymore, bro. You're good. And I stand up, and that's when I saw I'd been flash burned over 40% of my body. Holy and, shit. And uh, I jumped onto the rocks, which just peeled all that flash second. Oh, thing that burned oh, back. Uh, so I'm like, no, I think, oh, I, think, uh, I think it's time to, uh, you know, go to the hospital. hospital. And they're all like, nobody knows what to do. They're, they're like, 
Deers in headlights. Is, is this trauma? We don't we don't really understand. And, and where we were, I didn't want to get picked up by the county EMS. I was like, <laughs> the, the burn center is like 25 minutes away. Let's just get in the car and go, go to the burn center. So I'm sitting there in the car, like trying to be. I'm in total shock. You know, of course, I'm just trying to keep my burns out of the sun. <laughs> and, and, and I walk into the ER, and you know that you're because I haven't seen myself in the mirror, and my my skin it all feels warm. And but my face feels the same warm, and so I'm thinking my face is peeling off. Um, so I walk into the ER, and everybody in the ER goes, <gasps> and I was like, Oh, oh no, man, he's next. <laughs> so I'm laying in the ER, they're, they're pumping me full of drugs. By the way, when you're a burn patient, there's no questions, no questions about, <laughs> about there's no, there's no, uh, do you want to take the opioids or not? They're just like. They're like pumping you full of stuff, and it's the best time in the world. So I'm sitting here. I've just gotten my first experience at opioids at this point. Oh, 21 years old, and all the skydivers show up hours later drunk. They they didn't come straight to the hospital to see me. They went to an Irish pub, told the story, drank a car bomb, told the story, drank a car bomb. So they all show up trashed into the ER. And they're just taking pictures because I'm just laying there like burnt. It's still, they haven't they haven't started the debridement and all the stuff. Uh, and that's the only time I ever saw skydivers the whole time because they kept people kept texting like, "Hey, um, what are you doing this weekend? Hey," what? and I was like, "I'm still in the hospital, bro." They're like, <laughs> "What? Are you, so you're like actually hurt?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm like actually hurt." They're like, "It can't be that bad, right?" Like, like people refuse to believe that that. That these things happen, they refuse to believe that. Oh, if I go land at Calipatar, like, like me as a real person will be affected by hypoxia. Like that's just something that people talk mm, about, right? Mm. It's a it's a far away thing. But when you go on these skydives and you do these things, you're you, you know, you touch. Oh the yeah, impossible, the impossible. You touch it. Oh yeah, um, which is amazing. The moral of that story is skydivers should just jump. Stick to skydiving. Yeah. yeah, don't don't do anything on the ground. Just yeah. bubble wrap. Exactly. They should uh, they should just skydive. They shouldn't try to tow parachutes behind cars. And there you have it. Another episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void brought to you as always by, say it with me, fuck yeah, NZ Aerosports. Head to nzaerosports.com. By Pussfoot. That's right. Head to Pussfoot.com, the extreme sports collective, and check out everything they've got to offer. By SummitParachuteSystems.com. Jarrett Martin and the family cranking out amazing pilot rigs, as well as incredible rigging courses. And now joining the Lunatic team, it's the one and only Tony Suits. You know them, you love them. Head to TonySuit.com. Check out all the amazing standards, as well as the new incredible signature line they've got going on. And as for us, the Lunatic Fringe is now on YouTube. That's right, you're going to have the chance to put faces to the audio by heading to YouTube.com and looking up the Lunatic Fringe Podcast. It's easy. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, check out all the amazing videos from the previous guests that we've had, as well as new and upcoming interviews on video. As always, I am the fucking pilot. Head to thefuckingpilot.net or theprincesspilot.com. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time around.